0: Hello midlands. Today our sermon text comes from John chapter 6 verse 60 through 71. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, "This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it?" But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, "Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were able to see the man or the Son of man ascending to where he was before?" It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe him and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, "Do you want to go away as well?" Simon Peter answered him, "Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the holy one of God." Jesus answered them, "Did I choose you, or did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil." He spoke of Judas the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him.
1: Good morning, Midlands Church. It's a joy to be with you in some way this morning. Uh, We have eagerly anticipated ever since we moved to Kentucky the day when we would get to come and visit again. And I've even hoped for an opportunity to to preach to you again. And I think it goes without saying that this is not exactly what I had in mind. I didn't envision that I would be recording a sermon for you from my spare bedroom in Louisville, and that you'd be watching it this morning in your living rooms in South Carolina. But that is where we are. And I, for one, am just really grateful for the opportunity to preach today. I want to thank the elders for that invitation and just commend them as well as you for the great work you're doing. We're so encouraged by how you're doing as a church. And uh, we just hope to bring some encouragement to you this morning as we continue uh, all to to labor through this unique season Uh, that we are in. So I'm going to actually continue in John chapter 6 in the sermon series that you guys have been going through, and we're going to be looking at the passage that hadn't just read for us. So if I can, I'd like to pray, and then I want to look at the Word together this morning. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would bless the preaching of your Word today. I pray that you would bless the hearing of your Word on this day as uh, they hear me. Lord, I pray that you would be among us, that your spirit would move in a unique way, and that you would open our hearts to receive your word and hear your word in a new way today that would encourage us in this unique season. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, it goes without saying that much has changed in the world around us. It can be difficult to even keep up with. quickly things have developed. But one interesting way to measure how much the world has changed in the last few weeks is actually to look at the decrease in noise around the world. There was an article in the New York Times a couple weeks ago that looked at this and it talked about how the coronavirus has turned the roar of life to a whisper. In the article it talked about how as we began to practice social distancing and to shelter in place, the sounds of everyday life the sounds of school children playing together, the sounds of cars commuting, fans cheering at a sporting event, all of those sounds have decreased. And now, suddenly, scientists are reporting that their seismographs, those instruments they use to measure tremors in the Earth's surface, their seismographs are suddenly picking up sounds that were previously drowned out by the noise of humanity. So they're detecting smaller earthquakes, they're hearing the rumble of a distant volcano, and they're noticing these earth-rattling events that have been happening all along that previously went unnoticed. Now I wonder if any of you can relate to that with your regular routines interrupted and so many daily activities put on hold. I wonder if you're beginning to notice some things that you have previously rushed past. You may find yourself grateful for something you formerly took for granted, or uniquely aware of a weakness that you have typically ignored. Or it may be that in these difficult days, we find ourselves hearing from God himself more clearly than before, Now, I don't mean anything mystical by that. I don't mean that you're audibly hearing the voice of God necessarily. What I'm talking about is that as we open our Bibles and as we read God's Word, perhaps we would hear His truth in a fresh way, noticing things that were previously drowned out by our own noise. That is my prayer for us as we look at John 6 this morning. Because this passage has a particular focus on the power of the words of Jesus. And as the world has grown quieter around us, as life's roar has turned to a whisper, I want to call us to look to and rest in the words of Jesus this morning. So as we look to John 6, I just want to point out three truths that we see here about the words of Jesus. And that will help us kind of walk our way through this story. The first one is this, is that the words of Jesus divide. The words of Jesus divide. The most obvious comment on this passage, as you read through it or maybe heard it this morning, is to notice the way in which Jesus' words draw a line in the sand for those around him. He simply leaves no room for middle ground. In the preceding passage, as Jesus was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum, he made some provocative claims about himself. And you heard about that last week in Hart's sermon. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples that he is sent from God, that he is greater than Moses, that he is the bread of life that has come down from heaven. And perhaps most shockingly, that if anyone wants to have eternal life, they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. And with those statements in mind, we can understand the reaction we read about here in verse 60, where the disciples say, this is a hard saying. Now, hard there does not mean hard to understand, though it may very well be for us. What it means is something more like harsh or offensive or hard to bear. So as we're trying to wrap our minds around this, I think it's helpful to ask who exactly found this difficult and why did they find it difficult? So the who here, as John tells us, is many of his disciples. Uh, We know from the Gospels that Jesus traveled with 12 disciples that he had personally chosen. He makes reference to that at the end of this story. But there's also this wider group of followers who, at a minimum, considered him an authoritative teacher and found some benefit from being in his presence. And John calls them all disciples. These people had chosen to accompany Jesus They had watched him, they had heard him, they had benefited from him, but they were only willing to follow him so far. And the the situation reaches a tipping point here in our passage. We don't know how many there were or exactly how many departed that day. We just know that when they heard Jesus' words in John 6, they were scandalized by what he said. So why exactly did his words divide these disciples at this time? Well, for one, it seems that this was their very purpose. You remember back in John 2.25, John tells us that Jesus knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew what was in man. So Jesus' words here in John 6, they seem to aim at exposing that knowledge to these would-be disciples. That is, he knew that their faith was lacking. He says so in verse 64, but his words here are aimed at making that clear to them. And so I want to think about why exactly did these words in particular cause offense? And I think a hint is found in verse 61. It's a bit unclear the first couple of times you read it, but I think as you get into the background of this, you begin to see this kind of central message emerge from the passage. And so in verse 61, Jesus looks upon these people who have become offended, and he says this, Do you take offense at this, as in what I've just said? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now in John, this language of ascent is used to describe Jesus being lifted up to the cross. You see that, for example, in John chapter 3, when Jesus is interacting with Nicodemus. And so this idea of a brutal death, where the Messiah himself would be lifted high and exalted up on a cross, is sure to scandalize these fake followers. And Jesus knows it. And so he calls them out on it in this moment. And he does it in part to help them see that this is the only way to eternal life. And so it's as if he's saying to them, Look, if you are offended by me now, what will you do when I am lifted on a cross? How will you respond when my Father glorifies me by bringing life through my death? That's why these words divide. There's simply no room for neutrality in responding to the cross of Christ. And you know, the same dilemma divides the world today, even as these words are proclaimed among us. There are really only two responses to Jesus. You either receive his words or you reject them altogether. This passage and so many others in the Gospels make clear that you cannot have some of Jesus. You cannot have some of his benefits and some of his blessings without all of him. You cannot have the joy of Easter morning without the agony of Good Friday. You cannot experience his light and easy burden without also taking up your own cross. His words draw a line in the sand, and they demand a response from us. Now, I wonder if right now, as the noise of your own life has been reduced to a whisper in recent days, I wonder right now if some of you may hear that call more clearly than before. He died for you. His suffering was on your behalf. He was raised from the dead. And now he calls on you to believe in him and have eternal life. Now you can reject that offer, or you can receive it in faith, but you can do no other. He has left no room for neutrality. So the words of Jesus here and the words of Jesus throughout the Gospels divide. And as they do, they also reveal truth to us about ourselves. And so that's the second point I want to draw our attention to, is that the words of Jesus reveal. In this scene, we see how Jesus' words make clear to his hearers what he already knows. It's kind of fascinating to observe that. In verse 64, he says to them, There are some of you who do not believe. Now, at minimum, that's a reference to Judas, but it's probably intended uh, even broader toward these phony disciples who are about to abandon him. He says this before they walk away. You see, Jesus knew their hearts, and he wants to make sure that they know that he knows they do not fully believe in him. So his words reveal something to them about themselves. And then in verse 70, he does a similar thing when he's speaking to just the 12. And he says, one of you is a devil. And Jesus here is obviously referencing Judas, even though he doesn't call him by name. Uh, John, the writer of the gospel, makes it very clear that Jesus knew his betrayer all along. And so both of these statements show us something important here, that regardless of however shocking the scene may be to us, Jesus was not surprised at all. He knew their hearts, and he knew how this was going to end. But he also understood what it means and what it takes to be a genuine disciple. And he draws their attention to that through his words. He reveals that reality further through his teaching here. So as they're thinking about his words and he perceives their offense, he looks at them and declares bluntly in verse 65, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Now, he's obviously referring back to what he just said in uh, the preceding discourse, uh, probably especially in verse 45. Uh, This is why I told you all of that. The, The this there is referring to their unbelief. And you may be wondering, as you're hearing this story and as you're just thinking through what this means, how could someone walk with Jesus, see his miracles, hear his teaching, and still not believe? And the answer is given to us right here in verse 65. It's because belief begins with divine initiative. Faith is a gift of sovereign grace. As the Bible testifies from beginning to end, salvation is of the Lord. So this introduces a host of questions to us as we try to put all these things together in our mind, but this is really not the passage that answers them. It just speaks that reality bluntly. And I think we do well to rest in what the scripture clearly affirms, particularly here in this passage. We see two things at work that are unmistakable. On the one hand, we are called to believe and we are called to persevere in belief. We are called to exercise faith in a way that honors God and holds tightly to Jesus himself and believes his words in particular. On the other hand, we are completely dependent on the grace of God to grant us faith. We need the Lord's work in our lives to enable our hearts to receive his truth. And Jesus' words reveal this reality. So... I think there's great comfort for us in these words uh, today, particularly, you know, if you find yourself kind of wavering. I mean, this is a hard season. And some of you may find yourself just uniquely feeling the burden of the circumstances in in this current moment uh, right now, even this morning as you're hearing this sermon. And so I want to encourage you with a picture that's being painted for us here by the words of Jesus. No one comes to Jesus unless it is granted to him by the Father. And as Jesus goes on to say in John chapter 10, once you do, no one will snatch you out of his sovereign, powerful hand. That's John ten twenty nine. So when you fear that your faith is failing, that you might turn away, that you are growing weak beneath the burdens of this life, Take comfort in knowing that just as the sovereign grace of God first granted you faith, so also God's grace will hold you fast to the very end. Remember Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. We can rest in that and we can hope in that when we are weary by the weight of this world. I think another implication of of the scene we see here and and this reality that that Jesus reveals about our hearts is that this truth encourages us when we're sharing our faith with others, and we perhaps fear that they will never believe. You know, if you've got those people in your life that you have shared the good news of Jesus with, and you've seen them clearly reject it, and you think, Lord, they're too far. Will they ever come to know you? Will they ever come to believe these things? Will they ever come to see the things I so clearly see? And hear the truth, I so clearly perceive that they just can't seem to grasp or won't grasp, as it were. uh, This picture here reminds us that their faith does not rest on the power of your words. Only the Lord can give them life. For them to come to Jesus, they must be granted faith by the Father. And that's good news. That means... Their coming to Jesus is not resting on your ability to make Jesus beautiful. He already is. He is glorious. He is wonderful. Our job is to proclaim His glory to others and let the power of His words and the work of His Spirit, as we're about to read about in the next section, draw people to Himself as the Father grants faith to them. That's our job, he has his role, we have ours. And I find it very freeing to be reminded of that, particularly when I'm I'm seeking to make the gospel clear to someone and it just seems like they're they're just not seeing it. And I'm always tempted to think, well maybe I'm just not explaining it well. Maybe I just need to come at this from a different angle. And there's always room certainly for me and I'm sure you would agree there's always room to improve and 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 refine how I explain things and yet at the same time I know that at the end of the day at the end of the day that person will come to faith not because I presented a, a gospel a message in a good way not because my my stories made sense or because my words were perfectly articulated or I found just the right moment to insert just the right truth ultimately they will come to faith only because the Father has granted them faith by His grace. And that's tremendous news because He is a good and merciful God, and we can trust Him to grant faith to those who do not yet believe. So Jesus' words reveal this reality here, exposing our hearts and clarifying His truth about how He works in the lives of individuals. And then the third thing I want to draw your attention to is how the words of Jesus give life. And so his words divide, his words reveal, and then thirdly, his words give life. And we see this explanation given in verse 63 that I think is helpful for really understanding the whole scene that's going on here. Jesus makes two brief comments in verse 63, and I'd like to unpack them both. He says, The Spirit gives life, and the flesh is no help at all, so the Spirit gives life. We need the Spirit's help to understand spiritual truths. Uh, John, uh, the Apostle Paul, makes it really clear in First Corinthians two fourteen when he says, "The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. They're foolish. They they sound crazy." And, and then Paul goes on, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That is, he needs the Spirit to help him grasp these truths. So we come to understand spiritual truths not by looking inwardly, but by looking outside of ourselves to the Spirit of God for he alone gives life. And the typical way he gives life is is through the words of Jesus. That's what the next sentence says. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. And here I think the picture of this whole chapter starts to come together. That language in uh, the middle of the chapter where Jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, that that scandalous image that's so hard to to comprehend in, in our minds today. I think is probably intended to call to mind what the prophets what some of the prophets described in the Old Testament so for example in Ezekiel chapter 3 Ezekiel sees a scroll come down from heaven and he's he's commanded by the voice of the Lord to eat that scroll and then speak its message to the people of Israel and then in Jeremiah 15 he picks up on the same language and in, in Jeremiah 15, 16, he says, Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord. See, by, by making this allusion, Jesus is subtly equating his words with the words of Yahweh. He is saying to these people in front of him this day, when he speaks, It is the voice of God. And that makes sense in the Gospel of John. Remember John 1.18. No one has seen the Father except the Son who has come from the Father to make Him known. And how does He make Him known? He makes Him known by speaking. And when Jesus speaks, you are hearing the voice of God. In verse 63, this reality is made more explicit when Jesus says, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So Jesus is calling his disciples to eat or consume his words in this speech. For they grant life through his spirit. Like Ezekiel, we should consume his words so we can communicate them to others. Like Jeremiah, we should feast on his words because they give joy and delight our hearts. The Spirit gives life through his very words. That's the picture Jesus paints for us in this passage. And we need this because, as he says in the latter part of verse 63, the flesh is of no help at all. Now, you've seen this contrast between the Spirit and the flesh in John chapter 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And generally, he's comparing What we can do with what only God can do. And what we can do is generally described as the flesh. And what God can do is generally described as the spirit. So as Jesus explains to Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. All you are and all you have is flesh. And you can't produce the things of God in and of yourselves to enter the kingdom. As he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again of the spirit. And what that means for us is that we cannot think our way into the kingdom of God. We cannot work our way into the kingdom of God. We cannot do enough good to outweigh the bad that we have done in order to impress the king of this world. What we need is the Father's sovereign initiative. We need the Spirit's work. We need the words of Jesus that's why his words are so divisive. Some hear them and they respond in flesh, and that response looks exactly what you would expect a response from the flesh to look like. Others hear his words and they respond according to the life given to them by the Spirit. And that's what we see in John chapter 6 here as this scene plays out. The words of Jesus divide his disciples and they reveal his heart. His, uh, they reveal their hearts, the hearts of his disciples. So in verse 66, you come to kind of the conclusion for so many of these followers. They hear this, they hear Jesus' additional speech, and then they turn and depart from him. And we can assume for good. I think we should be sobered by this moment as we read this this morning, we should be reminded that it is possible to walk with Jesus, to even be counted among his followers for a season, and yet turn and walk away from him. That's why in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 3.12, the author reminds us and exhorts us, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That is a real exhortation and a real and genuine warning. So we must be diligent to continue taking in and believing the words of Jesus, because it is the words of Jesus that give life to us. But I don't think we should be driven to fear by this scene, because as Jesus will make very clear in John chapter 10, the good shepherd knows his sheep. He says, I know my own, and no one will snatch them out of his hand. And we see that reality play out in the rest of the scene. So in verse 67, Jesus turns to the twelve and he asks, Do you want to go away as well? Now, I think it's important that we don't misunderstand what's happening here. I don't think Jesus is deeply grieved And in this sort of hopeless and glum way, he looks at them and says, you guys too. The the language that he uses here is very clear. He actually anticipates a negative answer. Um, We can can see that in the Greek, and we can imagine that as we just think about all the theological realities behind the scenes here. He knows their answer before he asks. But he also knows they need to give a response more than he needs to hear it. I mean, they've just watched these crowds thin out. They've just watched their friends, likely, people whom they've gotten to know, suddenly depart. And they themselves are still pondering the implications of what Jesus has said. And they need to determine for themselves what their response will be. So Jesus graciously asked them, do you want to go away as well? And Peter's answer on behalf of the others is beautiful. He says simply, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You see, the disciples who departed, they asked themselves, why should we stay with this man? True disciples ask with Peter, where else would we go? We know and we believe that you, Jesus, are the Holy One of God. To believe Jesus is to know Him. To know Him is to believe Him and to trust His words, to recognize there is nowhere better to go. I wonder, is that your confession this morning? In this moment, here in John 6, these disciples did not understand everything going on around them. We shouldn't read too much into this confession But we shouldn't overlook it either because something important is happening here because they recognize they don't know everything that's going on. They don't know where the future is headed, but they do know Jesus. And in this moment, that is enough for them. And as Jesus makes clear in verse 70, even that is a gift of divine grace. I find this such a helpful scene for us to ponder in these particular days that we are in as a society. I believe this present crisis will reveal the hearts of many, Uh, in our churches, in our communities, perhaps even in your own homes. Trials have a way of doing that, but make no mistake, our current circumstances will not cause unbelief. but they may well reveal some unbelief that has previously gone unnoticed. You see, there may be some in these days who find that taking up their cross and following after Jesus is just more than they can bear. There may be some who walk away in these days because their concept of God leaves no room for suffering or judgment. And there may be some who find their false gods so exposed in these days that they simply wilt beneath the disappointment of it all. But I believe there will be others who will rise up in these days and say, to whom else shall we go? That truth will be made clearer by this present moment that you and I are in. You see, some of us will find that clinging to the words of Jesus, consuming his truth and resting in his grace, will bring a sweet repose in the midst of this storm. And we may just learn that sometimes the sound of the good shepherd's voice is sweetest on the most bitter of days. And as life slows down and the roar of this world grows quiet, We just may find ourselves hearing him in his word like we never have before. That's my prayer for me. That's my prayer for you this morning. So I'd like to close us in prayer around that truth today. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come to reveal the Father to us. We thank you that we can have life through your spirit, through your words, through your death, burial, and resurrection from the grave. Lord, we thank you that you have brought life to us. I pray for any who may be hearing this message this morning who have not tasted that life. I pray that even now they would hear your voice. I pray that your sheep would hear your voice today and be encouraged and be strengthened and be comforted by who you are and all they possess in you. Lord, give us perseverance as we continue to endure a difficult season. Lord, give us grace as we seek to extend grace to one another And we navigate the circumstances we find ourselves in. And Lord, give us hope. And may you even in these days do a new work. Do something unexpected that would surprise us all. As we find ourselves hearing from you in ways we never have before. And we pray these things in the great name of Jesus and to his glory. Amen.